to the Beginner's Guide to Model Railroading for now, the exuberantly opinionated guide to the basic techniques of the world's greatest hobby. In this episode, I'll address some long-deferred Q&As. Hello there! It feels like it's been quite a while since I've done a Q&A episode, albeit that may be more a function of it feeling like it's been quite a while since I've done any episode, excluding the uh, recent spate to monthly. But no matter, I'm here now to address some feedback that I've been stockpiling over the years. First off, some housekeeping. A while ago, I thanked someone for a review of the podcast, thinking that their name was Good Guy Seat Pie. It has since come to my attention, while listening to another podcast thanking this prolific listener, that their name may or may not also be pronounced Good Guys Eat Pie, which, in retrospect, would happen to make a lot more sense. Uh, beg pardon? Another correction. During the first miniseries episode on the history of North American railroading, I believe I misaccredited the first modern light rail system in North America to have been built in Calgary, Alberta. In fact, I am an error. The first light rail transit in North America was actually in Edmonton, Alberta, opening, like I said, in April 1978. However, I stand by my initial assessment that it was not necessarily a true second-generation LRT, being built much more like a Reagan-era subway, with a freight rail alignment, suburban routing, high-floor vehicles and platforms, turnstiles at stations rather than proof of payment, and taking an inordinately long period of time to actually be expanded beyond the initial alignment. Basically, it was a surface-level suburban subway, much like what you see in Washington, D.C., just running with wacky German vehicles that had pantographs. The second modern light rail transit system to open was four years later, now in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, in May 1981, and San Diego following two months later in July 1981. These two systems did massively improve on Edmonton's concept, being much better woven and integrated into their city's urban fabric, and were expanded regularly into citywide networks, if admittedly lean North American-style hub-and-spoke systems. Another transit-related correction, I neglected to mention the true origin of modern streetcar systems. While of course Portland is the first actual modern streetcar, the McKinney Avenue streetcar in Dallas, Texas actually predates its concepts quite a bit. So I was told during the 2023 NMRA National Convention, the streetcar's modern reincarnation originated to the 1980s when road crews unearthed old trolley tracks while reconstructing McKinney Avenue. Rather than move them or leave them in place as historic relics, enterprising local historians were able to convince city officials to make them into an open-air museum. However, while trolley museums had been in existence since the 1930s, one thing made the McKinney Avenue Transit Authority different. Rather than running hourly excursions into the woods for 10 minutes, as many a museum, the M-Line as it came to be known, decided to operate the trolleys in their natural element, as a transit system. 
Since 1989, the M-Line has operated seven days a week, 365 days a year. Free to the public since 2002, it made its first connection to the Dallas Light Rail also in 2002, and its second in 2015. At 4.6 miles and 38 stations, it is treated as a proper public service, and was one of the very first municipal utilities to be restored after the 2021 Texas snowstorms. Similarly to most other modern streetcars, it, in spite of itself, has been a significant driver of gentrification, so much so as to have an adjacent car barn donated by an adjacent and condo high-rise, but it is also single-handedly what put Uptown Dallas on the map. Personally, after several years in the tourist railroad industry and many more exploring transit services and urban design, this plucky little operation has a lot to teach both museums and municipalities. Treat transit like an indispensable public utility, and for God's fucking sake, make a fucking museum that goes from fucking somewhere to somewhere fucking else. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Also during the Railroad History episode, I failed to cover two important stories of early railroading which helped to elucidate why railroads became such corporatized giants, and how creative financing has been at their heart since the beginning. First, when the U.S. Congress initially authorized the building of the Transcontinental Railroad during the Civil War, what was understandably thought a pro-Union symbol of national pride was also a poor business decision, as the thousands of kilometers of railroad through open and sparsely populated wilderness prone to armed conflict with understandably perturbed Native Americans and requiring unthinkable quantities of heavy machinery to build and maintain was not exactly an inspiring prospect to private investors. So, to entice businesses to build the Impossible Railroad, as it was called, the U.S. government offered a modern equivalent of just short of $2 billion in startup costs, and a combination of land grants and low-interest loans to keep construction going. However, being somewhat preoccupied with a racist uprising in the Deep South, the government failed to allocate adequate resources to verify that these funds were being used judiciously. As construction began, the ironically named George Francis Train, whom, more ironically still, was actually a clipper ship magnate known for three circumnavigations of the planet, the basis for Jules Verne's Phileas Fogg, and an extremely early feminist who ran in many suffragist circles and financed a newspaper dedicated to women's rights, joined forces with Thomas C. Durant, the vice president of the Union Pacific Railroad, to form a construction company called Credit Mobilier, named after a respected French bank of the time to garner a veneer of respectability. However, respectable business practices were not to be found. Durant and Train contracted construction of the UP to Credit Mobilier and dramatically inflated the construction costs to funnel federal money back into their own pockets. The UP paid Credit Mobilier in stocks, which then went to Durant and Train, giving them even more controlling interest in the UP. Moreover, Credit Mobilier posted nearly 50% profit margins and gifted stock to congresspeople in exchange for favorable votes. The first line built of the Union Pacific was an unnecessarily curvy route that took a nine-mile oxbow loop out of its way around Omaha, building a true railroad to nowhere. Despite much ado of this being made in the press, it turns out that none involved in the scandal were ever criminally prosecuted, though some of the implicated politicians were censured, in part because of the hiding of records under Credit Mobilier rather than the Union Pacific's own filings. In short, it was written off not as a fraud, but as a bad business decision choosing a contractor with too high a price, never mind that the contractor shared executives with the consignee. Stock was missing, fortunes hoarded, and taxpayers defrauded. Thus was born the Railroad Robber Baron. On a slightly different historical note, railroads were directly attributable to the rise of factories and modern corporations as we understand them today. Not only did railroads have direct contributions to the rise of factories with things like improved transportation, they also pioneered the concept of bookkeeping. 
When railroads grew large enough to buy locomotives in the dozens or hundreds rather than the ones and twos, it behooved them to keep records on the downtime and maintenance requirements of entire classes of machines. Once that happens, it's trivial to notice which machines require more or less maintenance, which machines are better suited to which classes of tasks, and which machines require more or less fuel over time. Extrapolate this by 200 years, and thusly is born the modern corporate world. It is a fascinating and much deeper story than I have time to go in here, but I thought I'd point it out as a notable contribution of railroads to broader history. Now, on to listener feedback and questions. Listener James said, Well done. I just wanted to say I'm enjoying your podcast. I'm no beginner, but I'm enjoying it all the same. I love your attitude. Keep up the great work. Thank you, James. I'm glad you enjoy my attitude because I have no other modes of operation than this one. If you enjoy the podcast, that's entirely a you problem, which I would discuss with your doctor, as it may be a lethal condition. I also got feedback from listener Stephanie and her son Jackson, who are most interested in collecting model cars. I believe I posted a link they had on that resource to the website, and I generally accept links to modeling and informational resources from listeners to help others in this community. On this note, I got an email from a listener, Different James, saying, I'm thinking about starting to get in the model railroad hobby. Do you have any specific websites that you would recommend for getting information or buying model trains? Thank you, Different James. While I may be addressing this a mere few years after you emailed, I think my answer is simple. For information, I wouldn't necessarily recommend any website other than my own, of course, bgtmring.org. Rather, a good old-fashioned book is always the best way to start, because they usually have more thorough, well-thought-out information without blasting you with all the unnecessary and untrustworthy junk you might find on the internet. Hop on down to your local hobby shop and see what's in their book section. Anything with a sufficiently beginnery title should do, and if you don't have a local hobby shop, I personally usually enjoy Combox publications. For buying models, model railroading is niche enough that basically anybody who has the wherewithal to offer a locomotive is probably worthwhile. Not all locomotives are great, but basically all are good. However, some, I will admit, are gooder than others. If you are an aficionado of locomotive programming, you may want to be more discerning, especially for those containing either ESU loc sound or TCS decoders, but if you're a general issue modeler, basically anything with a DCC sound decoder will work for you. If I were to add any caveat, probably one which will make its way into the next beginner Quran episode scheduled for release in 2053, it would be to look for locomotives that have a keep-alive or current keeper capacitor in them. While not necessarily extremely common now, I believe the future to be a mixture between that and dead rail technology. Especially for beginners, the potential risk of pediddling yourself with a waste of time of track quality begs the solution of improved locomotive quality. Buy DCC Sound Keep-Alives first, DCC Sound second, DCC third, DCC Ready fourth, and regular DCC see if there are absolutely no other options. Make your first locomotives easy and reliable on yourself, and then graduate to more difficult decoder installations later. Secondly, I would strongly encourage you to become socially involved in the hobby, as that can often teach you more than what any book ever could. Find a hobby shop, local club, or online forum, and start making friends. Relatedly comes a question from listener Ethan. Hi, I love your podcast, but I have one question. Can a DC train have sound? I'm building a DC layout and want to run a train that makes sound, but it can only run on a Hornby DC system. Ethan, while I will caveat my answer by saying that I am unfamiliar with the specifics of Hornby's DC system, to my knowledge, most modern NMRA-compliant DCC decoders do play sounds on DC mode. Most of these are automatic, like chuffing or engine whine, but you sometimes can trigger other sounds, like whistles or bells. I believe MRC makes a device that's capable of doing this on a DC system, but at that point, if you're already investing in a device to trigger sounds, it may as well be worth your time to convert to DCC anyway. A single investment of a $400 
or pound DCC system and $100 or pound decoder every now and again for your favorite locomotive could end up lasting your entire hobby career and offer countless hours of fun. Happy modeling. Next comes a message from listener Andrew, pinning him for later. Hello, I know it's been some four months since your last episode, but I'm guessing you'll get this somehow. Eh, well, it ended up being a little bit longer than that, but but I'm back now. Um, so, Andrew, I appreciate your optimism, however misplaced it may be. Continuing. I'm 38 now, but when I was 10, my dad and I vaguely worked on an HO scale layout, but I don't think we ever actually got track fastened to the 4x8 foot sheet of plywood in my bedroom. Back to 38-year-old me. My dad is nearly 82 and had surgery scheduled after the main part of the COVID pandemic. A much longer than anticipated hospital stay plus rehab led me to deciding I really wanted to involve him in the railroad we never built. I've got a 25 by 4 foot N scale layout started, and I'm eager slash nervous slash excited and all that about getting wiring started, planning out where I'll add insulated rail joiners or not, and actually getting flex track put down. The idea for the size is that it isn't too big to keep at home, but also I can throw it in my hatchback and cart it to my parents' house. Again, Andrew, thanks for your comments. I'm glad to hear you're working on a layout with your father. In my experience, you don't need a big layout to have fun. Even a small shelf layout with a foldable continuous running option is enough to entertain. My biggest pieces of advice are thus. Do not be afraid to start something, and do not be afraid to tear it out and start it again. The longer I've been in this hobby, the more I've learned that mastery of the techniques doesn't just allow building beautiful models, they allow you to manipulate things to your will. Whereas a beginner might get discouraged and say, aw shucks, this building doesn't fit here, I guess I can't use it, an expert modeler will say, get the bandsaw, I'm going to make it fit. This hobby is surprisingly dynamic, and if you zoom out in time enough, you'll notice that all layouts are constantly having portions demolished, rebuilt, and replaced. How can I directly apply this to your modeling? First, don't be afraid to start laying track. The best way to learn is by doing, and the more track you lay, the better you'll be able to, say, identify where insulated rail joiners should go, and the neater your soldering will become. What's the worst that could happen when trying something new? Will you really mess up so badly that you'll ruin the hobby for everyone forever? I doubt so. Thus, secondly, if a particular track arrangement isn't working, don't be afraid to tear it right back out. If you forgot to put in a rail gap, the easiest fix to make is one with a Dremel. If a piece of track becomes compromised by too many fix attempts, tear it out and start with a new piece of track that takes into account what you've learned. If a curve is too tight, tear out the approaches and make it smoother. And, as a last resort, if an arrangement isn't working no matter how you lay the tracks, don't keep sticking with it. Instead, tear it out and rework the track plan. My final piece of advice is to take this approach with your whole layout as well, not just individual track placements. Build an option onto your current layout for future expansion, and someday you can add a second small portion which can also fit in the hatchback, possibly a switching district or a wilderness scene. Then, as the days go on, you could add or subtract such extensions as your interests develop, your space changes, and your skills improve. Don't just build a standalone layout, build an initial segment from which a larger meta layout could later nucleate. While it might take a lot of time and effort, I personally think that this is a very fun and rewarding hobby that can improve you as a person and give you memories that will stick with you forever. I hope you enjoy the journey. Happy modeling. Much, much more recently, after my apathy-induced hiatus, I got some feedback about my manifesto episode of the Proto-Future podcast, or alternatively Proto-Futurism. I'm still kind of deciding on a name. We'll see how that takes us. I was overwhelmed and touched by the responses. I even got a congratulatory email from David Pop, but truth be told, I did email him the episode with a clickbaity title. Though not expecting a reply, I got one within zero business days, which is truly impressive and honoring. Thank you so much, David Pop. I am unworthy. You helped me grow up as the adult that I am. I am 
I'm, 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 I'm blown away. Thank you so much. One of the next emails I received was from Andrew again. In a longer email I'm summarizing, he described how he thought it was really interesting the concept of modern passenger rail modeling, and made him think about things from the UK and France, but in a US context. Notably, he did ask, how do you keep the act of running passenger trains interesting, as, given that he lives in Indiana, it is not necessarily something that he often sees. He also agreed how frustrating sidewalk inequity was, and that the Minneapolis light rail is a magic carpet upon which I can show you the city. Please excuse my singing voice. Thank you, Andrew. I'm grateful for your attention, and thank you for your kind words on the most recent episode. It's been quite a while in the making, and yes, it will still be found in the BGT podcast feed. My plan is that as I wrap up BGT, I will alternate episodes one and the other in the same feed until eventually BGT finishes and Proto Future can take over. I have given all three NMRX clinics before, but I got feedback that they were difficult to find, so I recorded them all separately and collated them onto the website such that, if someone saw one live at a convention but missed the other two and was curious, they could find them all in a single location. If you like the manifesto, you will love the presentations, as they all cover much of what we're talking about, but in a more refined and railroad-focused fashion. As for making running passenger trains interesting, since I'm still building my primarily passenger layout, I'll have to get back to you on how successfully my ideas work, but I have a few thoughts as to how it could go. You'll also likely hear more of that in coming episodes. The first point is well described in Clinic 2 of my Modern Modeling Anthology on the Clinic section of the website. Modern passenger trains, because of their high frequency, can be used to complexify operations on any given layout. Freight trains are normally infrequent, especially on smaller switching layouts. But for the low, low price of a station and a few vehicles, you could realistically take a small layout from having two trains a day to 20. Obviously, a model railroad of only a modern transit system with no freight would simply be a series of boring station stops. As I believe I put it, an operating session would require a fleet of volunteer hobbyist bus drivers. But the admixture of freight and passenger trains means that they'd be constantly dodging each other, adding to the intrigue. Basically, it's a way to take existing model infrastructure and breathe more excitement into it. The second point is best described in Napoleon's words. Quantity has a quality all of its own. As I've recently learned from a trip to Europe, adding different routings and destination pairs increases the excitement of passenger train dynamics. Rather than running just one route as a US-style commuter line, forth in the morning and back in the evening, you can have different routes running all day that join or leave the line from interchanges, or, as is surprisingly common in Europe, trains can split apart in the middle at a station, with each half going to a different destination. And that's all before we even get to passenger yard operations, which, while not as extensive as they once were with RPOs and head-end traffic, are still interesting places with cleaning, maintenance, and etc. of train sets. Basically, imagine a regular mainline model railroad, but with a fast intercity train every two hours, or a regular small switching layout, but with the DMU every hour or half hour all day, and you can see how much more busy and interesting the exact same rail infrastructure can become. Thank you again very much for your thoughts, and please keep me posted on them. I love getting emails from listeners, especially as we dive very deep into theoretical and new subjects that I would like to think have never been tackled by modelers before. I also got an exceptionally heartwarming email from a trans-model railroader in Australia, which validated everything that I was trying to do with the manifesto. Anonymizing them in the event that their situation might be unaccepting, they said, quote, 
Just listened to your latest podcast and was very impressed with your honesty and candor. I must confess, though, that as far as I'm concerned, I do model the transition period of British Rail, but I also have some modern image Australian trains as well. I was surprised to hear you say that you are trans and goth, but also impressed by your courage to embrace these aspects, especially given the political climate at the moment in the USA. I am trans also, but mostly male in my appearance. I grew up in an age when these things had to be hidden... I grew up in an age when these things had to be hidden unless you wanted regular beatings or worse. I was born in 1951, so yes, I'm an old fart, but still impressed with your story. Keep up the good work. I'm so thankful for your appreciation of my honesty, as tact has never been one of my aptitudes. And you're more than allowed to model whatever time suits you. My argument is with those whom think modern modeling has no redeeming qualities, and whom wouldn't consider modeling it. A random distribution of bottling errors is what I seek, not the current over-representation for certain periods. That you're even here emailing me and own modern outline models sets you leagues ahead of your peers. As I've learned from years of truly unpleasant experience, it's easier for me to come out as trans-goth and autistic because, at least for me, trying to appear or act remotely normal usually ends up with worse results. It's better to wear who I am on my sleeve and set expectations than to try and hide it and fail even worsely so. The USA does have some issues at the moment, which is why I'm considering running away to places more liberal and progressive, like the birthplace of Nazism, but sarcasm aside, if I'm mass-shooted in the interim, at least I die as myself. I once asked an elderly trans NB why transness was so young at the moment, and uh, they responded with an answer that I was not expecting, uh, and this is really only one that comes from uh, uh, the wisdom of age. Uh, they said, because everyone else died from AIDS or hate crimes, um, that you, dear listener, lived to be 72 years old over that period of time, it doesn't make you an old fart, but a weathered survivor and my hat off to you goes. For a long time, I too passed an appearance as cis, but keep in mind, that doesn't make you any less a member of the community. In this era when the T lags so grossly behind the L, the G, the B, and the Q, your wisdom is in precious short supply. And on a podcast with such a pitiful following, or at least I'm assuming, that you sent such a wonderful and inspiring email to me not but 30 hours after the episode was posted is honoring and validates my quest. Thank you so much. I am very grateful. And finally, just as I was getting ready to finish this script, one last email slid into my DMs. It goes... If you are interested in a somewhat underdescribed diversity in the community, the self-identifying transgender community may be worth a look. I have had a few participants in MRR who are part of the community and talked about it with. And in another email, he continued, It is a very curious thing that the hobby swings right. I think it is something to do with the cost of the hobby and need for adult money in order to play. It is a curious topic. Anyway, count me as a listener. Best regards, Tom Barbalay. Oh, wow. I was not expecting to be congratulated out of the blue by such a hobby luminary. I am literally beaming. Thank you so much, Tom. Astonishingly, I was not aware of the transgender community, but that is a perfect way to describe it, although I think I might myself be more transgender. Thank you for sharing. <laughs>
I hope you found my rant interesting and thought-provoking. If you liked that, you will love the clinics on the website, particularly part three, which is a manic 160 slides in 60 minutes. I joke that it needs an epilepsy warning at the beginning. I don't necessarily consider it so surprising myself that model railroading leans right, even accounting for the fact that millennials are bucking tradition and becoming more liberal as they age, as opposed to previous generations which become more conservative. If you are of a more progressive mindset and prefer more modern rail infrastructure, you can partake in the rail transit hobby through municipal activism or just walking outside and seeing the trains that are running right now. However, if you are of a more traditional mindset, the world has already moved on, so outside of a few railroad museums and tourist trains of narrow scope, in as much as the trains are old but the environments they run through seldom are, your only option is to give up on the present and build the past for yourself in miniature. Thus, I think that the very medium of model railroading, a hobby in which you construct miniature worlds, inherently enriches for people seeking older, more traditional worlds which no longer exist outside. Furthermore, to my understanding, being a conservative inherently comes with an anxiety of feeling like the world you want or understand is, in many cases rightfully, decaying, and being in charge of your own personal world depicting the past may help assuage this anxiety. This is hardly the fault of the broader model railroad hobby, or even of model railroaders themselves, but it does lead to an echo chamber. A favorite saying I've heard, the choice to remain politically neutral is itself a political choice, rings true in hobby spaces too. To be sure, choo-choo inequity is much further down the list of injustices to deal with than, admittedly, basically everything else. But that there is even an echo chamber to begin with is itself indicative of a problem. Even if all Model Railroad podcasts and layouts decline to declare a political affiliation, that there is such an overabundance of transition-era, small-town America, white cis-het-topias somewhat gives away the true nature of the landscape. I've often been asked at various conventions I presented at, particularly Part 1, Modern Transit, why I don't give my presentations at municipal planning boards or state DOTs, and it often takes a not insignificant amount of restraint, my worst subject in grade school, to not quip that civil engineers know all of what I lecture and usually have for 40 years, but are stymied by voters wanting to, quote, protect the character of their neighborhood, unquote. My goal with these projects is thusly twofold, both to rectify what I see as an oversight in the hobby by educating and introducing potentially juicy modeling subjects, but also to meet the voters where they are and sneak in a portion of eat your municipal infrastructure and civic duty vegetables to an otherwise unassuming audience of modelers. Model railroading won't be politically neutral if all the podcasts and publications declare themselves centrist. Instead, model railroading will be politically neutral if you have your choice of right or left-leaning modeling media to partake in. And even this is a bit of a disingenuous supposition, seeing as a decidedly non-zero number of hobby media leans right, with the present absence of a counterbalance. Quoting from my proto-future manifesto, hence, I'm here. If I wasn't already gung-ho and barreling on to making this a regular podcast, having such a prestigious modeling influencer in my listenership as the likes of Tom Barbelay would be enough to make me so anyway. I just hope I don't disappoint. Uh, too much. Anyway, thank you Tom, and thank you everyone else who has deigned to send me a congratulations, comment, or question. It makes me think that this wacky little project may be a meaningful endeavor after all. Again, from the bottom of my heart, thank you.
I hope that, with this episode, I have demonstrated that not all of my listener questions were completely fabricated, just some of the ones in the earliest episodes, as was the case with Cody's office, so if the hobby's digital luminaries could do so during their own startup, I felt right to do so myself. If you want to join our currently dead Facebook community, you can, but I gave up on social media over the pandemic, and it probably won't be very interesting. Instead, if you have a question or comment, would like to make a donation, or would like to learn more, please visit the show's website at www.bgtmrring.org. If you like the show, please give me a good review on iTunes and subscribe to the podcast feed. If you did not like the show, do not say anything and contemplate the thought crime that you have committed. The theme music for this episode was Spark of Life by Benjamin Lazarus through Tribe of Noise. This podcast was written, recorded, and produced on the ancestral lands of the Susquehannock tribe, and I would like to thank them for their historical stewardship of central Pennsylvania. And now, as your reward for listening through my closing spiel, your modeler's vocabulary word for this episode is... Temple of Knowledge, the caboose of a train. Thank you very much for listening, and happy modeling.